Welcome back to Making an Artist. I'm your host, Shanna Schramm, creator, coach, and pottier. First off, a teeny tiny bit of potty business. Potty Power Hour, a monthly online creative salon, is back for June. Its mission is to provide a safe, judgment-free space to play, experiment, and create. Each hour has its own theme and prompts created from that theme for folks to create whatever they want. There are no mistakes at Potty Power Hour. So if you want to try a new art form or get your brain thinking in a new way, join us Saturday, June 13th at 11 a.m. Central. Visit pottypowerhour.com backslash events to register. On today's episode, we have one of my dearest and oldest friends back on the podcast. Filmmaker, trail runner, comedian, Jeffrey James Benny is joining us again to talk about grief, getting in over your head, and releasing a film during a pandemic. Enjoy. Oh my gosh, welcome back everyone. It's another episode of Making an Artist Remote. We are not in quote-unquote studio, which would be literally in my studio apartment. <laughs> wow, I am way too pleased at myself about that joke. I am here with Jeffrey James Benny. You may recall, if you are a listener to this podcast, he he is our first repeater. Actually, this will be your third. Am I? Yes, this will be your third appearance because you interviewed me once. I interviewed you in a river in Missouri. Remember when we could go to rivers in Missouri and be together? Do I ever. But the reason why I wanted to have you on is because you're having a very specific experience right now that I think would be really, really helpful for creatives and artists and just literally anybody that's trying to, quote unquote, get anything done because you finished your film. I did. Which is called Once Is Enough. Yeah. Yes. Once is enough. Just in case people don't make it through, I'm always like, plug the shit. Like, Amazon Prime, where can people go watch it? Yeah, Amazon right now, Once is Enough. Mm -hmm. uh, Onceisenoughfilm.com will always have the latest info. It will be on iTunes, Hulu, YouTube rentals, all those in the coming weeks. But for now, Amazon. Yes. So for folks that haven't heard the episode that you were on before, let's give them a little bit of a rundown. The lowdown on the hoedown is what I like to call it. So will you tell everybody what it is that you've been doing for the last five years? Yeah, so five years ago, I lost my mom to heart disease, mostly perpetuated by obesity, a general lack of health, and uh, wasn't in the best of places. I was desperate to get healthy. I discovered trail running, and all I wanted to do was disappear into the woods and write jokes. I had also moved to LA and was kind of trying to do the TV film thing. And I thought, why not just create my own opportunity? So I decided to run a 100 mile ultra marathon. <laughs> I mean, why not? I know, I don't know what I was thinking. It's just something you can do on the weekend, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I decided to run a 100 mile ultra marathon, write my first hour of stand up material about the experience. Easy peasy. No big deal. Lemon squeezy. <laughs> Film both of them and then put together a documentary slash stand up special film juxtaposition thing. And that's Once is Enough. And that's Once is Enough film. And I know that we've been friends for like, I don't know, maybe like 
20 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I know that I was a story consultant on this film. So I, I sort of have a dog in the race, horse in the race, if you will. I don't know what metaphor I want to use about that. But it's really, really good. Uh-huh. Jeff had a screening, a online screening for influencers about a week and a half ago that I facilitated. And I actually finally got to watch the film for the first time without having the lens on of somebody who's like going to give direction or, or notes or anything like that. And the music was on it too this time. And I hadn't seen it with the music and it was so fucking good. Mm. I had like body chills <laughs> that I don't have control over. Like I'm not, you know what I mean? Like I was just like, Oh, I'm going to see the film again. And it was just such a different experience and it was so enjoyable and it was so inspiring. And I know that people who have watched the film that don't even know who the hell you are, that they've reached out to me and they were like, oh, my God, this is so good. Like, this is such a good film. And I'm like, I know. When I was 11, my mom was diagnosed with heart failure. She was overweight. When my mom passed away, um, I think it was probably the hardest on Jeff because they were they were extremely close. I'm spending all this time in the waiting room. And I see this, a Trail Runner magazine. Is the 100 mile ultra marathon the new marathon? Jeffrey was not athletic as a kid. He wasn't really an outdoor kid. In elementary school, I was the epitome of the chubby, funny best friend. Set in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, runners face some of the longest and steepest climbs in America with a total elevation gain of over 15,000 feet. And I thought, what anyone desperate to lose weight would think. You guys, I should do this. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in a 100 mile, and no matter how fit you are, he could get altitude sickness, or he could easily pick up an injury. You literally can't breathe. It's really, really cold. I was falling apart, you guys. I had blisters upon blisters. Two toenails would fall off in the following weeks. Every muscle in my foot was completely shot. My calves, my calves were fine. My calves are always fine. (laughs) They're always good. The scary truth is that people have died while ultra running, and that's terrifying. I think I'm doing this because while she couldn't change her life, I can. All of this was inspired by a quote by Mae West that I have always loved since I was a kid. And Mae West said, you only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. The road to get to this piece of art. Oh, geez. It was a long one. It was a long one. (laughs) How long did you think it was going to take you to do? I thought the whole thing, like top to bottom, from starting to train for the first ultra marathon to launching the film was probably going to be about two and a half years, maybe two years. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's rude. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's just... Now that we're on the other side of it, it's just like, oh, sweet baby Jeff just didn't know. (laughs) I didn't know. He didn't know. He had no effing clue. He had no effing clue. And that's okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think the reason why I want to like really circle around that is because I think a lot of people think their expectations aren't properly measured when they're starting something new or when they're trying 
you know, uncharted waters, like all that stuff. We put kind of like really hard expectations on ourselves, in my opinion, and what I've seen with clients. Yeah. And honestly, it's for the best because if I had known that it was going to take five and a half years, if I had known how <laughs> difficult everything was going to be, every freaking step, I wouldn't have done it. I never would have started. So it's probably best yeah. that I was ignorant. <laughs> right. That makes a lot of sense. Because the last like six months, it's been super go time. Like you've got a distributor. Let's talk a little bit about the post-production process and like how things were really ramping up. Yeah, well, the process was delayed for a number of reasons, but we finally ended up with a finished film, and that's when things started to escalate. I mean, of course, I was hoping for the best, but I was keeping them pretty low. I didn't know if we would find a distributor interested in getting involved. I was ready to self-distribute and go that route, which is a totally viable route. I mean, it's 2020. You can absolutely self-distribute and get your film out there, have it seen, make some money. So that is a great way. But our top choice of distributor, Indie Rights, they're a very uh, indie filmmaker-centric uh, digital distributor, luckily was excited and on board and wanted to distribute the film. So things moved really quickly after that. They were ready to get it going <laughs> immediately, and we weren't. I mean, kind of, but we really had to scramble to get everything finished up. I mean, things like credits and things like that. And all the, mm -hmm. you know, you think like, oh, you just finish your film and send it to them. But you answered 4,000 text messages from me over the 36 sleepless hours I spent trying to get all of these files on a drive, subtitles, closed captioning, all the different forms of the poster. It was a madness. <laughs> I mean, I would say it was like 4,736 text messages that I got <laughs> during that period. <laughs> I know. It was a lot. It was crazy. You were like, I'm so sorry, but can you look at this again? And I was like, yes, I will. Yeah. At the same time, though, it was... I, it was the best film school I ever could have had. You know, it would have right? taken me four years and a whole lot more money to have gone to school for this. And of course, there's things I haven't learned, but there's no better way than doing. And the next time I do this, should I be foolish enough to decide to do this again? <laughs> it's going to be so much easier. It's going to be faster. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be so much better in a lot of regards. I think I got really lucky that this first project turned out as well as it did. Yeah, I think that's kind of where you and I really align as creatives is that we're both like self-starters. We're going to produce the project. We're not going to wait for anybody to come in and tell us we can do something. You were just like, hey, I got an idea. Let me train and run 100 miles. Let me get a film crew. Well, <laughs> and we like to do it ourselves. I mean, how many skills have you acquired to launch your business? Like and a zillion. And I use all of them now. Yeah. Like every skill that I've ever acquired along the way in what I do now has fully supported this career that I have. I can edit a podcast. I know how to set up audio. I know how to edit video, all of that stuff. And that was the major, well, there were many causes for delay, but that was one of the big ones was I thought I could do everything myself. I was like, I'll learn how to color grade. I'll learn how to re remember when I was, yes, I remember remember I was like, oh, I'm, I, maybe I just want to be a professional color grader. Doesn't that sound like fun? And then I did it for eight hours. And I was like, no, <laughs> color grading sucks. I mean, <laughs> it's great and it's so valuable, but yeah, it wasn't for me. And so that was really the process was me underestimating how difficult all of these things were going to be. Not that I didn't think that they were going to be difficult, but I thought maybe I could pick them up a little bit more easily. And 
constantly disappointed and then had to like find the money to pay someone who actually knew what they were doing to do it for me. Huge cause of delay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where would you get into the process where you were like, I actually can't do this? What was the thing that would show you that you needed to reach out and ask for help? Well, because I am... I'm really opinionated when it comes to aesthetics. Color grading is actually a great example because I probably could be a decent color grader, but I spent, I probably spent 20, 30, 40 hours diving into color grading, learning software, and I fully realize that it takes a lot longer than 40 hours to learn how to color grade a film. You know, it's a documentary, it's forgiving. I thought that mm. I could, it was gonna be good enough. And then I probably spent another right. 20 hours grading a few different shots and it was never where I wanted it to be. So luckily I right. did lower my expectations. The downside of that, again, was, you know, time and money. But I think it was usually that it just didn't meet my expectations and I had to oh, realize that okay. I, I wasn't good enough and that was okay. <laughs> right. That's like really ripe. <laughs> right. Though <laughs> so that that is really a right place to be in order to learn a lot about yourself and the limits because we don't talk about that sometimes about like hey, I've actually reached the limit of my capacity here and I need support and there's actually nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean you're not a talented artist, a talented filmmaker. It just means that you literally can't and shouldn't do it all. Yeah. It takes a village. Absolutely. And that's really why I say this was the best film school because in this scenario, while I wasn't able to just professionally color grade, what I was able to do was go into a meeting with a professional color grader mm. and like have an actual fruitful discussion where I could give specific feedback. I mean, could say, you know, like, hey, I think the tent is a little off here. I think we need to bring up the shadows here. I think the black point needs adjusted. Right. And I wasn't always right, but at least I like could have a discussion with him. How frustrating must it be for people like that? <laughs> you know, for like jerk offs who come in or like, I'm making a film and can't even like have yeah. an intelligent conversation. They're like, there needs to be more negative space here. Make it pop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, negative space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you kind of undercover bossed yourself a little bit too. Like you went in and stepped into the shoes of the people that you eventually came to hire so that you could have a better understanding and appreciation of their work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it made me appreciate all of them so much more. I mean, my mm -hmm. composer, I come from a music background, so I never dreamed that I could compose the music, but I did think like, oh, well maybe I can be a bigger part of it. And when it came to it, I was like, no, just let him do his thing. He did an amazing job. Like there's zero reason why I needed to get involved and screw yeah, it up. He really did it the music on this documentary it's such a character in it it's so good yeah agreed benjamin denon very talented benjamin denon everybody hire that man give him all your money <laughs> all of it all of it all of it let's dive a little bit further into the process of like what was the worst thing that happened whilst creating this film the most challenging thing i don't know if i can answer that without ruining the film because Oh, is it a plot point in the film? Well, yeah. Is it? You know what it is. Is it going to ruin it to mention it? You know what? If we need to have people like listen consciously and carefully, if they want to fast forward to this part, because <laughs> yeah. they're going to go rent it, yeah. then go ahead. Okay. So just keep going. Okay. So spoiler, spoiler alert, alert, everyone. Spoiler alert. I think not 
finishing the first race. So to spoil it, I got to the almost 15 mile point in the first 100 miler that I attempted and I missed the time cutoff. I felt good, I was ready to go, but I missed the time cutoff and each aid station has a time cutoff and I got pulled. And I think that was the hardest failure. There were many throughout this process. I think that was the hardest one because that was the first one. Right. That was the first big thing oh, that didn't it sure go as was, wasn't it? Yeah, the big thing. Yeah, and it also was a, I don't know, it was, you know, again, just, just over-optimism. I mean, I had made such a big deal of the fact I was running 100 miles. It was all over all the social medias. Like, family and friends, like, traveled halfway across the continent to come to the run. And it just made failing so much worse. Oh. <laughs> so much worse. The second run, no more spoilers, but there is a second run. And... I didn't tell anyone. I told the people who were with me. I told the crew that I had to take with me and I select best friends. You, you knew a couple other <laughs> friends. Yeah, but I didn't tell anyone. And I'm glad that I didn't because that pressure was, was gone. Do you think though that like, cause I actually think there might be a positive to the fact that you had told everyone and failed so publicly Sure, is that it brought you back to the run again. Like, it, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, I think if you had failed privately as someone who just accidentally sent an email to a couple hundred people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> You've got a story to tell. I feel so much better <laughs> listening to your failure now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. You just accidentally sent an email to yeah. 200 people. Yes. Yeah, side people. note, everyone that's listening, <laughs> if you got that email it was an accident, the real email will come out in a few days. This podcast will be posted way after you get the real email. But I was just complaining to Jeff about how I had made a mistake in front of my email subscription list. And he was like, don't worry about it. And now you're telling me about how, yeah, you you did not finish in front of kind of hundreds of people on the internet. But I think that's what got you back in so fast because you got back on the Seattle really quick. Oh, I had to. I mean, you're absolutely right. Everyone knew about it and had watched me not finish, you know, either in person or virtually. And yeah, it was a huge motivator for doing it again. I think I would have done it anyway, but I might not have tried quite as hard. So yeah, I think you're spot on. And I think in the long run, it, it ended up making a more realistic story. I mean, the idea that this six foot two, 340 pound man just decided to run a 100 mile ultra marathon and it went perfectly, that's really not very realistic. Well, so and it's I think not as fun end, cinematically, honestly. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it definitely would have been cheaper and easier. <laughs> but yeah, maybe the story wasn't as good. I think this is a good point, though, because we're not making things to be cheap and we're not making things to be easy. If you want to make art, if you want to make anything and you want to challenge yourself, there is a certain agreement you have to make with yourself that you are willing to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Hi, do you like what you're hearing? If so, swing on by patreon.com backslash life of the potty and become a patron. This is a listener supported podcast. So any amount you can support making an artist with is enough and greatly appreciated. If you can't become a patron right now, please rate, review, and share your favorite episodes so we can keep the conversation going. Thank you and potty. And I actually think the failure was actually a gift to the film and to you and to us as viewers of this work, yeah, you got knocked down and guess what? You got back up again. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It wasn't always easy, but I think, 
not that I ever really struggled with being vulnerable. I mean, everyone does to a certain extent, right? Yeah. But I think uh, watching myself like crying about my mom <laughs> on film, especially in like live screenings, was so uncomfortable, but also like a little freeing. I can't tell you how many grown men with beards and flannel came up, you know, after the live show or after watching the film and were clearly so moved, you know, and I would never would have thought that was my demo. Like, yeah, I think vulnerability was valuable, I guess, throughout. I'll never forget because I opened for Jeff's live show in Kansas City a few years ago. And I remember one night before you went on, you turned to me and you go, does it look like I've been crying? (laughs) (laughs) Did it? Uh, No, I don't think it had. I I think you kept it pretty, uh, pretty contained. I don't know if I went back and watched it again, maybe you would notice. But there were times when I was like telling jokes about my mom that I would internally like be holding back tears. And like there were moments the audience was like cackling, but I wasn't in the same spot. And it was such a weird, a weird dynamic, you know, to be. I mean, that is literally the epitome of being like the clown that's crying on the inside. Like (laughs) you're right. Literally. Literally. So here's something that is interesting that comes up for me is that I also wonder, again, going back to that initial failure, I'm just going to keep saying that because I really want to normalize the word failure. Sure. Is that I wonder if that had not happened and the film had just been easy breezy, beautiful cover girl. And we come to this point of release and you experience a pandemic where everything that you had scheduled around releasing the film is literally like canceled. (laughs) And I wonder if that initial failure really prepared you to manage this release of the film during and completely unprecedented. We haven't experienced this in a hundred years, quarantine pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I think it gave me the confidence to know that like it's going to be fine. Literally, the world could be ending and like, it's going to work out. It'll be okay. So let's talk about that. Like, what did you have to pivot on? What was your initial reactions around? Oh, I'm going to be releasing a film now during a pandemic, a film that you worked on for five years. No big deal. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think the bummers were the live screenings. We had some really exciting live screenings in the mix in Salt Lake and Portland and North Carolina some like really great stuff. And I don't know that it was vital. Certainly it would have been helpful marketing wise for the film. I don't know that it was a huge hit to the bottom line, but it was a really exciting opportunity to network and like talk to people about this thing that I've spent some time making. And I think it kind of robbed me robbed. That might be a little dramatic, but I think it robbed me a little bit of the satisfaction of getting to watch people watch it and talk to them Mm -hmm. in person and like, Mm -hmm. you know, have that, that feeling. I mean, we come from a theater background. Yeah, we're live theater people. Yeah. And I love performing live. There's nothing like it. And not to get off topic, but I mean, that was a weird thing about the screenings that we did Mm -hmm. have. It feels so out of control (laughs) to watch your film with other people in a theater because theater actors, we are constantly gauging the audience, making adjustments. Our performance could be much bigger or much smaller on any given night, depending on the audience. And in the theater, you don't have that option. There is no no changes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a little terrifying to, you know, the train is on the tracks, barreling down the tracks and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. They either like it or they don't. Right. Yeah. (laughs) 
But anyway, I think not getting to have that opportunity to watch people watch the film really stunk. Conversely, we're really lucky that, you know, digital release was our plan from the beginning. So I think, you know, luckily we weren't planning for a, a big theatrical release that got canceled. Yeah, I think it is what it is. I think it could have been worse. It could have been better. We could have had a lot of really fun live screenings, a lot of fun networking, but we also could have been a $5 million project that lost our first opening weekend of sales. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm, I, you mm -hmm. know, it is what it is. I guess look at the silver lining, but it wasn't ideal. I definitely feel like I missed a little of the satisfaction of watching mm -hmm. people watch the film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you journal about that? Yeah. But full disclosure, Jeff and I have a running joke where he'll come to me with a problem and I'll be like, you should journal about that. And he's Everything. like... Everything. And you never do. Well, now you do. But I do some now. Yeah, yeah. now you do. Now you do. Because you, you're on the journal train. Did you journal about <laughs> <So> it? Now... <laughs> oh, man. So, okay. So you come into this process. Things get flipped around. You're doing an online influencer screening. Let's talk about the lead up to that, because there was a very interesting experience that you had. Um, <laughs> Panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> Anxiety attack. Yeah. 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 So all of our live screenings got canceled. We had the idea to do a virtual influencer screening online. It's a great idea. Yeah, it was a great consolation. Organized by the amazing Elise D'Alessandro Santiago. Yes. Follow oh my her gosh. on the internet. Follow her. At Ready to Stare. We love her. Everywhere follow her. Brilliant. So lucky that I crossed paths with her. She uh, helped me. Not helped me. She organized the influencer screening. She took care of, of everything. <laughs> but this was the first time we had done something like this. And we didn't know... We didn't know what to expect. Right. We didn't know. And it's a pandemic. Yeah. And we didn't know if we could get 300 people there or five people there. <laughs> we just, we had no idea. So we got everything in order. And we, I think I know what you're asking about. We mm -hmm. sent out the invites to, I don't know, like 200, 250 influencers and we got some really excited responses, some really enthusiastic responses back saying how excited they were. But it was like four days before the influencer screening and we only had... It was like Sunday and the influencer screening was on a Thursday. Mm -hmm. And I woke up and got my computer out and started working and we only had like, uh, what? Eight, <laughs> nine people. No, you, two? you texted me and you said you had two RSVPs. Yeah, then two. <laughs> <laughs> then two. Yeah, I don't remember. I just remember it induced panic. And I just started furiously working away and like I didn't want to bother Elise on a Sunday. And I couldn't get my brain to think about anything else. I was just typing and clicking away at my computer doing nothing. I was not accomplishing anything. My brain was just like reeling. And then I noticed that I, I was like forgetting to inhale. I was like, I need to inhale. Like <laughs> I'm like yeah. forgetting to breathe. And then I messaged you because it, <laughs> it hit me. And I was like, it wasn't severe, but I was like, I think this might be what an anxiety attack feels like. I think that might be what's going on here. 
I'm not laughing at you. Well, I'm making a joke of it, but like it was right. really, <laughs> I felt like I was like frozen in place on my sofa, like having yeah. to consciously think to breathe. And then you responded, thank God, quickly. And just talking to somebody else immediately like chilled it out. But it wasn't awesome. And I mean, not that no. I've ever not been sympathetic to friends who have dealt with anxiety, but it just gave me a whole new perspective on like, oh my God, mm-hmm. <laughs> y'all have yeah. been dealing with these like more than <laughs> once. <laughs> I think my exact response after you had kind of cleared through it, I said, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. You did. <laughs> and I was just like, just call me next time. Now I know. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, do you think it was just like the culmination of kind of everything, all the work, all the things at that moment? And then like, you were walking around in something that was incredibly unknown, even more unknown than, say, like a live screening that was planned and going to be produced by a theater kind of thing. That's what it was. It wasn't really about the live screening. It was, you know, I still don't have any idea what to expect in terms of numbers. How many people are going to watch this? Are we going to make any money? Are we at least going to make like some of the money back that we spent? I just don't know. I haven't been through this before. And we're also not a huge budget film that has money for a marketing team where we have people who have been through this before who can say, hey, if we spend you know X amount on this type of advertising, we're almost definitely going to get this amount. You know, I, there was just, there are no guarantees, total uncertainty. And it wasn't really about the influencer screening. What it was, was that we had spent so much time researching these 250 influencers in related genres around the film who we had identified as like, these people, this is right up their alley. They should be really excited about this. We're so excited to invite them. And what it was, was like only two of them were excited about the film. And if only two of them were excited about the film, Nobody else in the world is going to be excited about the film. Nobody wants to see the film. No one's going to watch it. I'm never going to make it. You know, and it's just that spiral. Like, it wasn't about the influencer screening. It was like, what are the broader implications of this very... It was like the rabbit hole. Yeah. It was the access point to the rabbit hole. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. looking back, it was so silly. I mean, we've both sold tickets to a gazillion live shows, and it's always the same. You know, we ended up... Every single time I do a live show, I'm always in a fucking panic. Yeah, we ended up with a great audience. I mean, we would have liked more, but there were like 50-ish people there, and and it was great. Everyone was really engaged, and the people who were there were just like balls in. Like, it was Mm -hmm. such a great, fun night. And I should have known that, you know, everyone's going to commit in the last 48 hours. I, I should have known better, but... You know, well, the ball I mean, started but rolling. should you have? Because also, like, this isn't how we've done things in the past. Yeah, Nobody has gone to a ton of online screenings. We don't have data for that. Yeah. So you really were kind of like walking in the dark. Yeah, you're and that's totally right. Fucking scary. Yeah, it is. I mean, it that's is. what I'm trying to tell the kids at home. It's yeah, just, kids at home, it's scary. <laughs> it's scary, and you kind of have to just face the fear of it and keep going and be nice to yourself. And call your friend Shanna when you're having a panic attack. Yeah, that's what you gotta do. That's what you gotta do. Well, I'm looking back, I mean, like, what was the worst case scenario? So people don't buy the film. So a lot of people don't watch it. Like, that's definitely not awesome. But, you know, I just had five years of the best therapy I possibly could have had to help, like, move me through this. I, like, went out of my comfort zone in so many different areas. So, I mean, like, you know, there's so much to gain beyond... You know, I would like to have my savings account back, but <laughs> it's not the Someday end of the world. Someday it's going to be there, buddy. I know it. I believe in yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, I think 
if we're going to talk about like what you gain outside of monetary gains, right? You probably process the shit out of your grief doing this. Jesus, I've relived the story, you know, how many hundreds of times having to watch the film over and over again. I'm, I was just about to say like I'm growing numb to it, but I'm actually not. And the influencer screening, surprise, Jeffrey can't turn his camera off the whole time everyone's watching the film. So everyone had to screen the film with me in the corner. And like, I was like having to look away from the film because I was like, I don't want all these people to watch me crying at my own film. <laughs> How oh, silly. No, it's not silly. <laughs> it's a little silly. No, it's not. It's fucking real. It's honest. Cause that's the thing too, is like grief doesn't go away. It just transforms. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know? 100%. Yeah, for sure. And that is what we want to like shine the light on and put the spotlight on in art is that like it's okay to go run 100 miles because you're sad yeah you know <laughs> that's exactly what happened <laughs> <laughs> just like a boy crying in the forest just running i, I mean, mean literally at times yeah <laughs> yeah i just this idea that we're supposed to be shut off or there's a time limit on grief or that shouldn't still make us upset i mean i've done storytelling pieces about trauma and I have had 60, 70 year old women come up to me afterwards and talk about their experiences when they were little kids and how they were moved because That's I so was cool. telling the truth on stage and it connected to their truth and it still hurts. Yeah, 100%. And that's fucking the truth of it. That's just like, it's just, guys, don't kid yourself that it's ever gonna go away or that you're ever gonna become numb to it. Yeah, and I didn't really think of it when I was making the film, but I was telling my publicist how many of those, you know, burly men's men had such a strong reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And that's when she had the idea to release the film Mother's Day weekend. Mm -hmm. And she said, there are so many mama's boys out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was like, at the end of the day, this is a mama's boy film. I was like, you're mm -hmm. right. You are spot on. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. Spot on. Want more potty in your life? Head on over to lifeofthepotty.com and sign up to receive the potty report. It's a super fun newsletter that will keep you knee deep in potty knowledge and goings on. We've always got fun things in the works and you're invited to all of it. Kind of to talk a little bit more about the importance of your personal story and how it can be effective is like, you probably had no idea like the full extent of where you would end up with this film, right? At the beginning, but you were just like, I have this desire in me to like run this race, to do an hour of comedy, to make it into a film. Nobody's asking me to do it except for your own internal desire. And I have a lot of clients that'll come in and they feel like they're being full of themselves if they want to share their personal essays or stories or, you know, transform them into solo shows, etc. And I just think that the desire itself is an asset and it's so powerful and it leads to you telling this story that these burly dudes are connecting to and it gives them an access point to feel their motherfucking feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever had a feeling, what are the chances somebody else has had the same feeling? <laughs> they're pretty good. I mean, they're a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> they're literally a hundred percent surety. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, that's a bummer to me. You know, I'm really aware that I have 
Midwestern, upper middle class, white boy confidence. And so I know how lucky I am to, to mm-hmm. not have like, some of those same self-doubts, whether founded, whether foolish or not, maybe overly confident at time. <clears throat> that sucks to hear. I mean, I know that that's the case, but I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the coolest things about my mom. She's just like blindly supportive. And so mm. I... Like ridiculous stuff. I mean, I'd be like, oh, mom, like there's some scrap wood. I'm going to go make a roller coaster on the hay bales with wood. <laughs> and she'd be like, uh, okay, yeah, go do that. Like, that sounds cool. Like, be careful. <laughs> so, and I get myself in over my head, but I tend to just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I tend to just go for it. I mean, the boss is a great example of a time that I've gotten in over my head. And ugh. Oh, tell a little bit about the bus. Yeah, don't, don't have to. <laughs> no, so I had the idea. I was working from home. I worked remotely and I had an idea to buy a school bus, go back to my family's farm in Missouri and convert it into an RV, which wasn't a ridiculous idea. Lots of people do it. It's a thing. But I hadn't finished this project yet. I had way too much on my plate. It was way more expensive than I thought it was going to be. And it just didn't work out. It was one of my mm-hmm. my big ideas that just didn't pan out. And it's hard to... Ugh, it's hard to deal with that. That was kind of always my thing is I would have ridiculous ideas, but I always made it happen. And that was one of the first times that I had a really big idea that like really failed. So that's been mm. rough. So that's kind of sunk cost fallacy, right? You stuck with it and then you assessed and you're like, yeah, I've put a lot of money in this, but it's not really working out for me. So I'm going to pull out. The other option of that is like people just keep pouring money, time and energy into the project. Right. So you made a decision there. I don't know that it was necessarily failure. Yeah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, you know, it's failure, but like failure is okay sometimes. I mean, it's failure is okay sometimes because you learn to circle back. Like it's like, I just use circle back. Ugh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, if anyone's foolish enough to embark upon their first film, I think that's my first piece of advice is to make sure that whatever the story is you want to tell, make sure it is so close to your heart and that like there's no way you're going to survive not telling it mm. because if this was about anything else other than honoring my mom if this you know if i hadn't felt like i had let her down in some way should i have quit i never would have finished this thing i can't tell you how many brick walls i came up against any reasonable person would have quit working on this film years ago but that wasn't an option so i mean that's my if anyone who's thinking about making a film takes anything away from this just make sure it's a story that you are just hell-bent on telling mm-hmm. so jeff really quickly for anybody that doesn't know give a quick summation of this bus project Oh, man. Okay. Well, I worked from home at the time, and I decided that I should buy a school bus on eBay. I should buy a school bus on eBay, literally. Literally. Literally a school bus on eBay. Take it back to my family's farm in Missouri, move back to my family's farm in Missouri, and renovate it into an RV. I got... As one does. As one does. You know, about... I mean, over halfway finished. We were getting to the finishes and plumbing, And I got a job offer in Salt Lake City. I just got distracted, ran out of money, like all the things. And it just 
Also, one more thing, though, is that you were in Missouri during the election of Trump and after. And I think that had a lot to do, too, with this project. I arrived back in Missouri one week before the election. (laughs) Quite the welcome home back to rural life after leaving California. Yeah. Yeah, so I got back. The election happened. And I made good progress. Like, the bus is awesome. His name is Earl created a YouTube channel called the Earl project. And it was so much fun making videos and working on him, but you know, I just got a job offer and life changed and priorities changed and it was so expensive and it just, it wasn't, it just took too long and it just wasn't something that made sense to keep moving forward with going. Right. Yeah. Could you at any time go back and finish him eventually? Sure. Yeah. So maybe you've just tabled Earl. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's a, a pipe dream that I would love to have a house in Utah. I live in Salt Lake City now. I'd love to like own a home someplace kind of pretty and not too far outside of Salt Lake, but it's very easy to be someplace that feels remote and beautiful 30 minutes mm-hmm. away from Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. He'd make such a good guest house, wouldn't he? I would totally stay in Earl. Oh, yeah. It'd be awesome. Yeah. I love it. So I think we're coming to the end of our time here, Jeff. It has been wonderful talking to you. Wonderfulest. Anything that you want to leave the folks at home with, like again, where they can find you on the internet, follow you on social. Yeah. Yeah. Give us those deets. Oh yeah. At Jeffrey Binney, J E F F R E Y B I N N E Y on all the social medias. Once is enough film.com. Yeah. I think that's it. Those are the places. Yeah. And I'm going to give one final plug for the film because I think right now, too, it's really important that we fill our brains up with as much positive, wholesome, inspiring content as possible because the news is a literal shit show. (laughs) Um, show. Like, I can't even like, I mean, I know what's going on. I stay informed. But like Eckhart Tolle says, like, I just I jump off that news cycle as soon as I can. Once I get my facts, (laughs) I leave and then. I want to be meditating or journaling or coaching or watching wholesome content like Once is Enough film. And (laughs) you're welcome. It's true, though. Like, I think like you literally beat the odds, dude. Like, this is not an easy thing to do. (laughs) And I think we need to see more of that, especially right now when we're experiencing something that is really not easy to be experiencing and is really uncomfortable. It gives people hope. 100%. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for having me, friend. You're welcome, friend. All right, we're on the count of three. We got to say potty. Are you ready? So ready. Are you sure? Yeah, but can okay. you count evenly this time? <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> One, two, three. Potty! Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Podcast art by Jessica Savage. Episode editing by Darby Masters. Episode music by Lennon Bone. And I've been your host, Shanna Schramm. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Potty!